I believe Ephesians 5.18 is the most important verse about the Christian spiritual life in the Bible. Because it clearly establishes responsibilities for God and for us. God tells us what He wants to be in in charge of and what what He wants us to be responsible for. And it's a beautiful statement. In fact, the second half of it, be filled by the Spirit, is so precious. Methusko is the verb to not be drunk with wine. Plerao, P-L-E-R-O-O, is the verb in Paul's usage for being filled by the Spirit. Being filled by the Spirit. To further dramatize what's happening in this language, and I'm going to spend most of the day in all of Ephesians 5, 1 through 6, 9. Okay? At least 32 commands from God the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul for the church. 32 commands in, that, in, in one way of counting. You can quibble about some of the Old Testament quotes and stuff, but 32 commands in this passage where the, I think the ultimate one is engage the power God gave you, be filled by the Spirit. Now, when you look closely at this language, be filled by the Spirit, notice I'm translating that distinctively and consistently. I'm taking that to be the instrumental or the personal agent who does the filling the Holy Spirit is the filler. He is the filler. Okay? When, otherwise, how are you filling yourself with the Spirit is the question. Who, after all, is pouring? He is standing by to do this. This verb, to fill, to fill, plerao, is special. And it's, it's, I think it's wonderful. Watch this. Watch this. The verb, be filled. Okay, I'm going to take you back, some of you, into your grammar days. That's grandma days. Okay? To think through how we communicate in language. Do you remember when your teacher told you, maybe in ninth grade comp, maybe in freshman college comp, you know, that last course some of you took, you said, it's not worth it going to work, you know. Um, And you're right, it wasn't worth it. Some of us stuck it out, but um, they said no passive voice. Sometimes kids, when they're learning to write, they get hooked on the passive voice. I was uh, taken to school by my mother today. And I was, uh, I was, uh, awakened by her, and, uh, and I missed the bus. The, I was missed by the bus, and um, <laughs> I was fed by, the, 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 by my mother who made breakfast for me. Um, and, uh, and there's a lot of times we slip into this passive voice, and it's kind of a no-no. It's a legalistic rule in grammar class. It is legalistic. It's just a rule. No passive voice. Why? Because to our ears, it's just not good style. It's not good writing style unless you're writing a newspaper and nobody apparently reads those anymore. And if they do, I mean, why? And um, uh, I know you need to read the paper and keep yourself informed and sharpen your worldview skills as you go to the scriptures first and then what Satan says and then find the errors and the lies that he tells. But th- the point is that the newspaper loves to put in the passive voice. They love the passive voice. And um, because it's terse and... Uh, and compelling sometimes but this is uh, not a problem for greek or for paul he gives you a passive command now get ready for this when's the last time you told someone to do something passive give a command to a dog let's take uh, instruction instructing a dog teaching a dog uh, o- obedience command sit stay heal attack whatever you tell your dog um there's no passive voice in dog training very similar to how we train children. They're not dogs, but they have to obey. And 
course, you rub their nose in it and swat them with a newspaper. No, I'm, I'm kidding. But, but you have to train children too. It, it, is, it is the highest calling I think God gave human beings to bring other human beings made in God's image into the world, to disciple them up, to train them up, to fear God, to love Him, to serve Him with all their lives so that they don't waste their lives. I mean, the worst thing in the world is a child that grows up and, and, and then there's no point. We grow up and then we don't fulfill the purpose for which we've been designed, which is to rule with Jesus Christ for all eternity. What a shame. To, to, well, they, they made it to, to, to adulthood, but they, but they wasted their lives. Now, that's the highest calling we've been given is raising children, I believe. Uh, rearing children is the best way, but we don't command them in the passive voice. Well, we kind of, we say, be still. Still yourself. You know, be still. Be quiet. Sit down, you know. Or with my boys, a lot of times it's run. You go and run now. Run and run and run until I say stop. And then you stop. You know, that, we, we, we don't really command very much in the passive voice, but Paul gives a shocking thing. And I'm spending time on it because you, you miss it when you read it. The verb plerao, to be filled, is in the present tense. And in Greek, what that means is that you're being brought by the portrayal of the action into the, into the action. It's... it's ongoing in sort of its portrayal it's portrayed as a continuous thing that's what the present tense will do and present commands mean this isn't a special mountaintop moment where you can say oh i finally felt filled by the spirit and that was it and can't wait till camp next year or something this is an ongoing consistent that's what the present tense is saying this is always god's uh, abiding responsibility he places on us Praise God that the filling of the Spirit that, he's, that is commanded here, which I would draw a distinction with statements in the Old Testament and some in, and even in, in the Gospels and Acts, different verbs, same English word filled, but different verbs. Pimplamy is not plerao. The work here of the Spirit is an ongoing, not special event, but your, your life takes on a special character because you're putting on Christ. It's like the verb to believe. It's, a, it's all usually present tense. It's not, I did believe. Usually it's, I believe, and I go on believing. And please do. Keep trusting the one whom you've trusted and who did in a moment when you first believed beget you again or you were born again into new life and you received the, the Holy Spirit to indwell you. Well, here, the indwelling Spirit is uh, supposed to fill you, but you are commanded, be filled. It's an ongoing responsibility in the passive voice. In the passive voice. That cup successfully received the command, be filled by my pitcher, by, by me. I, I'm the one that filled it. It received the command. It passively did it. Because it's not a person, it's a cup, it's a glass, and I just did what I wanted to do. But we're not mindless, unthinking, unchoosing vessels we're made in god's image and so every time you find a command in the scriptures pay attention it is an opportunity for you to exercise what god gave you and what he holds you accountable for the ability to say yes the ability to say no greek grammarians will tell you that the passive voice in the greek language and koine biblical greek is the mood the passive i'm sorry the the imperative mood is the farthest removed from the portrayal of reality don't you want to go sit in greek class with me 
When I teach Greek, I don't teach like that, but I'm not really a Greek scholar, so I hadn't put that on yet. You know, I don't really, and I never had a Greek professor teach that way. But when you read Greek grammars, they'll say that when you get to the imperative mood in Greek, it is the farthest removed in terms of its portrayal of reality. Indicative, I'm sorry to have to do this with you. Like, I don't want to hear indicative. That doesn't sound like Jesus. Well, today we're, we're learning Ephesians 5. It's about the indicative mood. What is true? What is settled? What is real? The indicative mood is where we're portraying reality. We're saying this is how it is. Indicative just means indicate. It indicates reality, if, you'll, if you will. And that's how most of your verbs in the Bible are. But this is not in the indicative. You are filled by the Spirit. It's in the imperative. You are to be filled by the Spirit. It's a command. Now, why is it the farthest removed from the portrayal of reality? Because it is the speaker with the, with the authority, apparently, to say, and the recipient, the hearer, who now has the choice. Every parent in the room knows this is true. You issue directives and imperatives, and then they either choose to say, yes, sir, well, to me, or no, sir, or nah, or no, or uh-uh. They have to make their choice. Every command sets you up this way. I have a professor I love very much who says, yeah, that's true, but this is how God sovereignly determines that we will truly persevere by his commands. And so we inevitably will believe. But that's not what it says. That may be what's happening in God's counsels in eternity, but that's not what it says. It says you do this. Or rather, you let this be done. You get out of the way. Let God pour. Let him do what he wants to do. That's the, that's the sense of a passive command. The idea is that the Holy Spirit in you is standing by and he wants to express himself in you so that you put on the character of Jesus Christ and bear the fruit Jesus promised in John 15 and that the Holy Spirit gives us the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, which we've been talking about in the Christian spiritual life. The Holy Spirit pours and you just... Make sure you're not in the way of that. It's a receptiveness. There has to be a receptiveness to what God wants us to do. And I want you to hang on to that word. Let that word kind of sink in for a second because we're talking about what God wants to do with me, what God wants to do with you. And you have to ask yourself a question right now. Maybe the first time you thought about this ever, or it's a refreshment of a thought that you love, and, and that's where it is for me. Are you willing, are you wanting, desiring for God to have his way because you know he's good, holy, righteous, perfect, that everything he wants is the highest and best, that when he has you in mind, he wants the very best for you, so that when God says, this is what I want for you, you say, I may not feel like it, but I know, I believe, I am living my life on the basis that whatever God wants is the best. Is that, is that the thought that you have? I mean, I know we don't feel like, for example, sinking down into some indicatives and imperatives. I know we don't want to do that. Because it's work, and this is Sunday, and we don't want to work. We want to worship. And I think that's great until I read the Bible and I say, oh, this is challenging. So I can put things in colors. I can break it down and take a little bit of time with it. And the intention is that the thought that Paul is giving us, we would look at it with some closeness, some, some attention to detail, and the outcome will be, you know what? I do want God to have his way. This is the best thing I've ever heard, that the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, wants to work in me with his word such that I put on Christ, such that I truly can say, like the Apostle Paul, Philippians, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. A 
told my mother, who's visiting with us this morning, this week, I, I told her I have about 17 hours of, of, of material today, and I'm going to only give half of one hour and, and make that fit into a whole hour. A lot, a lot of sermons... A lot of sermons will stretch four or five minutes worth of content. You could have gotten a Reader's Digest version. They'll stretch it into 20 to 30, 45 minutes of, of space. And it's, it's kind of like um, when they make those packing peanuts. They, you know, the machine that makes those, it's this little thing, and it blows up. And then it's got a lot of, a lot of space, a, little, a lot of filler. I don't like filler. I want meat. I'm hungry. I want to eat, and I want to know the things of God. And... Um, and we can. We really can know the things of God that he's given us. I told you about this word indicative, what God is saying in the word of God, the, the way the grammar works, that something is true, and the imperative, something you're responsible for, that you're supposed to choose, and when you choose it, you do it, it, it becomes true in your experience. This is the hardest thing in the world, is to go from the Bible to my experience. This is how you do it. God tells you what's true, you believe it, and then you listen to what he tells you he wants on that basis, and then you do it. Did you know that that is the outline for Paul's epistles? Every letter Paul writes, it does this. If you've got your Bible, please open, and we've got pew Bibles for you. Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I want to show you this idea of the indicative and the imperative, the, the statement of reality and then the responsibility that's based on it. We saw it last week in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, 1 through 10. You are baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ so that you share in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection so that your life is now his life and you are glorified and exalted in Christ so that you can say, because I died with Christ, Christ, I have Romans 6 11, consider yourselves dead to sin. There's the command in Romans 6, the first command, 6 11, consider, even so consider yourselves dead to sin. See, that's the command based on the truth of your position in Christ. Did I lose you? Are you with me? He tells me 10 verses of what happened when I first believed. It's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Romans 6, 1 through 10. And then verse 11 is believe it, assume it, Consider yourselves dead to sin. It's a command. And then in verse 13, the big one, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members, your person, your body, your, your, your substance as instruments or weapons of righteousness to God. You present yourself on the basis of what's true by virtue of your position in Christ. It's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Do you know about it? Do you know what, what the word of God says about it? By the way, the where, where that's taught is not Acts 2. It happens in Acts 2, but it's not taught in Acts 2. Paul teaches it in Romans 6 and other places, 1 Corinthians 12, which we looked at last week. Wonderful doctrine. And some of you have come up and said, wow, you know, I needed that refresher on my position in Christ, that this is true whether I feel it or not. It's true because I have Christ, because of what God did. And I need to reckon it so. I need to obey the command, see, on that basis in um, Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Now, when you uh, work your way through Ephesians, read it 15 or 20 times, you know, just to get a, a flavor for what's going on in six little chapters of uh, perhaps the pinnacle of the Apostle Paul's writing. And we're headed in our study of the life of Paul. We've, we've been working on it for years. We're going through Acts sequentially. We're almost to Romans, and then we'll do, uh, we'll do Ephesians. But what's wonderful, if you read Ephesians, is you don't get a single command until chapter 3, and only there Paul says, remember, because he's just dialoguing. He's introducing a concept that he wants them to keep in mind. 
Because what's true for you by what Christ did for you on the cross and what God did for you when you first believed in Christ is a settled fact, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. You don't get any commands until really chapter 4. And, well, we're not under law. We're under grace. The Old Testament was law. They had commands. That's somebody that hasn't read to Ephesians 4. I mean, yeah, we are under grace, not under the Mosaic law. And there is something you need to think through. But, but to understand commands and that we're to be obedient, this isn't legalism. I hear that a lot. That if, if you emphasize obedience in the Christian life, then you're being legalistic. You know, that's what my favorite theological term that people use to disregard the Bible with. They just put the Bible aside and all the commands of Ephesians 4 on the basis of your position in Christ, Ephesians 1 through 3, go out the window. Now, I know I'm summarizing the entire book of Ephesians right now because I told you I want to work through Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, verse 9. But to do that, I really have to tell you that chapters 1 through 3 give you your position in Christ and all that God has done for you, including our favorite memory verses, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created, that's a new creation, in Christ unto good works, which he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Let me say I've summarized Ephesians 1 through 3. Now we get into some wonderful commands. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That is the turning point in Ephesians where we go from the indicative to the imperative. We stop talking about what is true by your position. It's still true. You need to assume it. And that becomes the basis, that mindset of my new life in Christ and the new man, the mystery of the church, one new man of Jews and Gentiles in one body called the church. That's a lot of what Ephesians 3 is about. Now, when we get into 4, on the basis of these truths that are settled, whether you know it or not, now that you know it, now you need to obey. Walk worthy of this high calling. Walk worthy of this high calling. You are a child of God. We'll get in 5.1. What does it look like if you walk worthy of your calling? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body. And then he goes into the metaphysics of the church, what the church is. It's all based on Jesus Christ. Let me skip down to some commands here. We've got the spiritual gifts in verse 7, the grace uh, to each one of us. Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We slip on down to the discussion of spiritual gifts and their purpose on down into verse um, 16 uh, and then verse 17. Now, I'm, I'm summarizing. I'm, notice I'm, I'm kind of zooming in till we get to chapter 5. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Friends. Don't walk like the world is the command of Ephesians 4.17. If you think that you're not responsible to obey that command, you have missed the point of the New Testament. We're not being filled by the Spirit with the Word of God. We're not thinking God's thoughts after Him. We're not spiritual. We're, at, we're at best, using some contrived emphasis of theology to disregard what the Scriptures actually teach. The Bible says... This is the order of the day for those who are in Christ. Now, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, I, this is not for you. This is Christian spirituality. I'd like you to learn about it, but I'm not, you can't think you're responsible for this. You can't walk, what does he say, no longer walk uh, just as the Gentiles also walk. You are walking as the Gentiles. You're one of them. You're like, he's talking about the world. 
And what, what, what's true? Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in, there, in them because of the hardness of their heart. Okay? And so I'm trying to point out the commands of the New Testament, the commands of the Apostle Paul. I mean, the command to be filled by the Spirit has captivated me since I first learned that it was, it was a present passive imperative. Well, it's, there are lots of commands through here. Lay aside falsehood in verse 25. Speak truth each one with his neighbor. Be angry yet don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Those are all imperatives. Those are all commands. On the basis of your position in Christ and the power that resides in you. It's all the work of God's grace in you, but these are works God prepared beforehand for you to walk in. So never let somebody tell you that you, the Christian, are not responsible to obey. There's another subtle thing that happens that I've seen. Have you ever heard this? If you are truly a Christian, it is inevitable that you'll obey. Don't rest on that one too much. You can find yourself uh, uh, face down in a pig wallow, coming to yourself, eating pig food, saying, what am I doing? You can find yourself a prodigal if you think that it will be inevitable just because of your position in Christ that you'll actually walk worthy of your calling. I, I find all these commands in Scripture because it isn't inevitable. In fact, we're commanded to do it. And it's our choice. We really are responsible to make that choice. I don't know what you do with the command. Now, let me, let me, if we don't have choice, people say, well, there's no free choice. Okay, well, I don't want to get into philosophy, but I would say this. I've got an inanimate object right here. Everybody agree? No, no wires. No, okay. Fill up that cup over there. Pour water in the cup. Imperative, command, recipient of the command. And yet it's disobedient. Would we say that that was a disobedient pitcher? You wouldn't because you would be silly. We're not silly. We did check our brains at the door. We actually do study closely what the scriptures say with every fiber of our being. So, no, we're thinking here. We wouldn't say it's disobedient because it's not capable of obedience. Don't treat yourself like, a, like an inanimate object and say, well, inevitability is settled. And there's a lot that isn't settled. Because God made you in his image and he wants you to serve him and he wants you to love him and you have to choose to do that. A lot of conditions in the scriptures that are binding on us like John 14, 21, 23. If you do what I say, which is to love me, if you love me by keeping my commandments, I'll make my abode with you. Jesus promises a special presence. People talk about the special presence in the Lord's table. How about the special presence of fellowship with Jesus Christ when we're obedient to him? How about fellowship with God, what we're really called to? Stop messing around with mysticism. All right, I am where I want to be. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. What kind of word is be imitators? What do you think? An imperative. Yeah, somebody said imperative. Somebody said it's a command. Because it is. Do it. Be imitators of God. I, once, I recently saw an article that said, don't try to imitate God because it's unscriptural. <laughs> Ephesians 5.1 says, imitate God. Now, what, he, what the, the person meant was, you can't, from the energy of the sin nature, from the flesh, imitate God. You have to be empowered by God to do it. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. You have to abide in Christ for, so that you are connected to the life-giving source that produces this fruit. Yeah, Right, but in, in abiding, considering ourselves dead to sin, 
you actually do have to do this. You have to choose this. Oh, how can I imitate God? Am I going to create ex nihilo? Am I going to know the end from the beginning? Am I going to die on the cross for the sins of the world after I incarnate? No. No, he tells, he tells you. Imitate God, be imitators of God like you would as a, as a child to your father. So what does daddy do? What's daddy like? Well, he tells you, and walk in love. That's where you're imitating God. You put on his love. And Jesus said, love one another as I've loved you. That's an imitative love. See, he gives the initiation and then we respond. He produces the indicative, the, the thing that's true in us, and then he tells us what he wants and we respond by obeying the command. It's, it's initiation response with us in the Lord. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. In verses 3 through 5, but porneia or any impurity or greed, that means sex that is not marital between a husband and wife, man and woman. That's what porneia means. That's just, that's what the word means. It doesn't mean pictures. It means sexual contact that is not between a husband and wife. Prior to marriage, breaking a marriage, after someone dies and now we're widowed or whatever, it's non-marital sexual contact between husband and wife. That's what the Bible's teaching. That's what Paul says. I have, a, um, I, I have encountered that, okay, if we have to say that's what it means, then we have to say Paul is wrong because after all today in our culture, we know this isn't true. And that's your worldview problem right there. You found your problem. Either God spoke or he didn't. Either God is speaking through the, through the Apostle Paul or he's not. And I'm, I'm of the opinion, I'm of the firm conviction, and I've staked my entire eternal life on it, that yes, Paul is actually giving us what the Holy Spirit inspired, breathed out for him to say. Every word, every case, every verbal tense. It must not even be named. You can't even have this pornea thing in any way associated with you. I knew a pastor was going to start preaching about sex. We're going to have to have it every Sunday, apparently. Well, it keeps coming up in passages about the spiritual life because I believe, you can go check me out on this, check me out on this, but if you go back to Genesis, this is Satan's, one of his primary, if not his main avenue of attack on the human race, this great blessing God gave for marriage. Every covenant has a sign. The sign of marriage is that. It's the physical act of marriage. It's a blessing. It's a wonderful thing God gave us. It's not merely procreative. It's, it's many things. But when we pervert it, take God's good blessing and turn it into something that he didn't design it for, we get all kinds of problems. All kinds of problems. I believe, I I used to joke about this in high school with a a really good friend I had. I used to joke that pretty much all of human history's faults and failings boil down to sex. Remember Helen, the face that sailed a thousand ships? What's that story about? What's what's Homer doing there with with the, the Trojan War? We've got to go kill them because they took our wife. When, uh, when Conan says, what are the great things in life? Oh, yuck, you don't know what Conan said. To, to crush your enemies, to see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of the women. Warfare is hell primarily on the fairer sex. We haven't experienced a land war on our continent except by our own brethren, by our own people, since the War of 1812. And there were some raping and pillaging going on in the Civil War, but not like it was on the European continent and all the other continents in world history. The reason we prepare for war is because we really honor womanhood, a huge part of this. 
and you say, no, women are equal now. Take away the cars and the electricity and Samuel Colt, who made every man equal. And then let's talk about where the power balance is. See, we, 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 need, to, we need to recognize what God did when he made us. And this, th- that men, men, that will make you a gentleman who will protect and honor and magnify and exalt womanhood. It's different. It's beautiful. It's powerful in its own way by God's design. And we're, in a, we're racing as fast as we can you know, to the bottom of the pool here, trying to drown ourselves as a culture by rejecting this truth. But that's a rabbit I didn't necessarily want to chase. I'm just saying the sexual immorality he's talking about here is universal. It's everywhere. We're not better than anyone else because we think this is wrong. We're just trying to align with the truth and the reality of the universe. There's a right and wrong to how you use your body, including in this aspect. There must be no filthiness and silly talk, coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. See, even what you say is regulated here. For this you know with certainty that no immoral, that's porneia, or impure person or covetous man who's an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And you've got to work out what he means by that. And I've taught on what uh, the New Testament teaches on inheritance. And you should, you should work this out. Because if this means that doing these things you lose your salvation, and inheritance means going to heaven, then we've got a serious problem with everything else Paul wrote about how you get justified and uh, how God keeps you in his hand. If you think it means that no Christian, no true Christian ever covets, you are telling yourself you're not a Christian because you're struggling with that, I guarantee you. It's the, it's the eye problem. We all have it. I don't have it. That's because the plank sticking out of your eye, you can't see it. But we struggle with this. In other words, there's no place for Christian self-righteousness. We have to be recognizing of our need, our constant need of God's grace. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. See, he doesn't say you can't be. He says don't be. I'm just trying to show you throughout this section of the epistle, it's command after command after command after command. Be filled by the Spirit. And the reason I say 5.1 through 6.9 is that everything after 5.18, be filled by the Spirit, falls under that command. Husbands and wives, parents and children, management and labor, it's all under the umbrella, the empowerment of this ultimate command, be filled by the Spirit. You were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Oh, I missed a command. I should have underlined walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. This is what we're to walk in as those who consider ourselves alive from the dead, um, alive to God and dead to sin, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. See, that's the attitude. Who already knows what's pleasing to the Lord? Some things, right? Who feels like they got a full grasp on what God expects of them? Who feels like I'm there, I know what he wants, sometimes I do it, sometimes I don't? Who, who really thinks they've got the scald on that? I can't say I do. I don't think anybody really has that. I think Paul says trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. He's not talking to baby believers, he's talking to believers. We've never arrived. We can never say, well, I just know exactly what God thinks. We can know what God thinks when we know what he's told us and we prayerfully seek to bring it forth in our lives as we depend on his grace, as we walk by his spirit. So there's always humility. See, we're clipping through. In verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. What? 
Now I've got to go around hunting for sin and help people see their sin. And I'm going to be the great exposer. Some people think there's only one verse in Ephesians 5, and it's 5.11b. Finally, something for self-righteous Christians. I was looking for something to go. I mean, I've been, I don't really have a lot to do. I've got a lot of time on my hands, and I just want to go shine the light on everybody's sin. Well, actually, the way you expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness as you show up, you're there. Have you ever had that? Have you ever had that experience where someone was just there in your presence and for some reason their presence just bothered you? It just set your teeth on edge? I just mm, wish they weren't there. Well, that's what the darkness feels when the light shows up. It's like when you're trying to wake up after you, 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 you need to sleep in, you're crash you really need to you, you need you need the rest and but no no uh, dad is forcing you to wake up in the morning get up it's gonna happen and you don't want to get up and you want to be darkness and asleep but the light is gonna shine and it's gonna shine forth that's what happens when you show up with somebody committed to unfruitful as paul says deeds of darkness you don't have to say a word you don't have to go hunting a family member I will not name which grandparent. (laughs) Used to love to make it her business. (laughs) What we were doing wrong, whatever it was. Especially two or three things that are kind of Baptist-y sins. Expose it. That's not our call. That's not our mission. You're not going to be salt and light if you're on the hunt. And everybody knows that. I hope you know that. If you feel like I'm, I'm trampling on you, some, some sense of, you're really taking away my, my, my main thing here, let God have it. Just give it to him. Say, God, make me light. And pastor says, I'm, pastor says Paul isn't telling me to be on the hunt. Let me, let me see that. If, if you think differently, the Lord will show you. Expose these things, for it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done in them secret. I think you're not talking about it. It's disgraceful to even speak about it, but watch what he says. But all things become visible when they're exposed by the light. You walk as light, you just show up. The light shines in the darkness, and then, the, oh no. All kinds of things happen. I was once visiting a friend who was uh, responsible for his neighbor's cats. Um, some of you, I just lost you. You're just in cat land all of a sudden. You got the, the Ipanema song, dun, 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 in your head, and the cat's dancing around in your, in your mind. And, but I was, I was visiting. See, that's an illustration inside an illustration. It's, it's a big no-no. We'll never get out of that. I had, a, I had a friend. I was visiting with him for an overnight in high school, and he had to take care of his neighbor's cat. So, of course, I went over with him. We were responsible young men. We did our job, and we, didn't, uh, we, did, we, we did it perfectly. We were perfectly responsible, fed the cats, Turn the lights off, lock the door. Uh, that's not the, the punchline of the story. The punchline is down in East Texas, it's very wet. Very wet place. And you have a problem down there that we don't really have up here unless you've gotten somebody's luggage or furniture from down south. It's called roaches. We don't really have them here. I've really been excited about that. It's, it's one of the selling points for people that are struggling with this down south it's a really great thing to um to to go where there's no that you're not dealing with this yeah it gets cold but you know it's cold enough that you could pretty much make a snowman every year 
and kids love snowmen, and it doesn't make sense to have a sleigh ride without snow on the ground. Anyway, so um, <laughs> I'm not supposed to preach sermons at my mother about her moving up here. So. <laughs> so we're down in Texas, and my friend is feeding the cats, and we turn on the light, and the people have been out of there for a week. They've been out of their house for a week, and these were not dirty people, but they lived in muggy East Texas. And guess what? But they did leave the food for the cats out because that you just fed the cats and left. So what did we find when we got there? Something I personally had never seen in all my East Texasing days, 14, 15 years old. And there are 15 or 20 great, as we would say, biggins, big, nasty. We could, some people call them water bugs, big black. I don't think you were supposed to call them cockroaches. I mean, these things are uh, gross. But you know how we saw them? We didn't see them. You look, the house was nice on the outside. You go inside, it doesn't smell bad. It's not, you can't tell by the smell. But when the light came on in the kitchen to do the afternoon or evening feed for the cats, <laughs> there are 15 or 20 of these nasty giant cock or, or water bugs. <laughs> you know, crickets carry more diseases than roaches. East Texans know that. Anyway, um, Growing up, it was a constant war. My dad was fighting the squirrels for the pecans in his tree, and my mother was fighting the roaches for the sanity of the house, and uh, it's it's a battle. But I think that's a great illustration of what happens. You just flip the light on. You just show up with the light. You can't help but have it. You show up with the truth. If you won't go, gentlemen, with with the guys to the strip club, but you want to be with them, it sounds something like this. The guys say, hey, we're going to knock off. It's so-and-so's birthday or, or promotion or whatever. We're going to go to the gentleman's club. It's hard. To, this is not a great illustration for rural Eastern Connecticut, but they have them here. Don't go look. I'm not telling you where. Um, but, but somebody says, hey, let's go. And the other guys say, yeah, why not? And you say, I love to hang out with you guys, but I don't do that. Oh, oh, I, I didn't know Jesus was going to show up. Well, he just did. We just said, we just lived out Christ, and you're not saying, I don't want to know you, I don't want to be with you, I'm just, I don't do that. I'm not going to do that. Your, your speech patterns show you off without you having to, oh, just stop that language. You don't have to say that, just, just use, your, use a clean mouth. You will show up. That's not the substance of my message, but hopefully it's helpful tonight. It's not, today, it's not really the main point. Everything that becomes visible is light. And so we have the Old Testament quote, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Take very care. That's a command. Making the most of your time because the days are evil because they're short and we're in a wicked world. And so there's not enough days to get done what we really need to be about, which is our father's business. So then do not be foolish. That's a command. Don't be foolish. I love that command. Don't you love that command? Don't be foolish. There's a, that's a negative. How about a positive? But understand, it's a command to understand what the will of the Lord is. See what I mean by the indicative is your position in Christ and the imperative is all these commands you do because of your position in Christ. So I need to understand what the will of the Lord is. That's, that's a challenge. Well, don't be drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled by the Spirit. Your Bible says, may say with the Spirit. I think that seems to indicate he's the content that fills you. I believe he's the one who does the filling. He was the one who does the filling, and the content is his truth, his word, his thinking. 
that's a subtle point, but I think it's important because look what happens. You have a lot of results. With the result that you speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with the result that you sing and make melody with your heart to the Lord. You know what I, that verse taught me to tell my kids when, they, when we come to sing in church and say, hey, you know what we're doing? We are singing to the Lord together. That's what this song service is. That's why we're singing, fill up my cup, Lord. We're singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. So how we talk to one another, how we talk to the Lord, and then our, our gratitude, always giving thanks for all things. This, these are all results of being filled by the Spirit. You've heard me teach this many times, many of you. Some of you, this is the first time. But grammatically, all these results are participle results of that primary verb, be filled by the Spirit. How you treat each other in, in word and deed, how you worship God in song, how you approach God with a constant attitude of thanksgiving, and how even with look at the protocol for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. I'm praying to God in my gratitude in the name of the Son. That's the only way I have access to the Father is in the name of the Son, through the Son. So I go to the Father in the name of the Son with gratitude at all time for all things. That's Christian prayer. That's Christian gratitude. And then, and being subject, I would translate it one to another in the fear of Christ. I forget if it was Wayne Grudem or who that suggested that. I think it was Grudem. That one to another would be a better translation. It may be some of the older translations do that. Uh, as, as would be appropriate, where there's an appropriate sub- subjugation, subject yourself. Where there's an appropriate exercise of authority, exercise authority, but with humility, submitting to God. And then it would get into the ho- what we call the household code. The household code, verse 22, doesn't even have a verb. It starts a new sort of paragraph, and it just says, wives, your husbands. Wives to your husbands and everything in the Lord. But, it, but we have to supply a verb. It's submit to your husbands based on verse 21. Be subject one to another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Look, I'm underlining commands. I'm underlining statements of responsibility that we have to choose to obey. See, the governing thing is that the power of the Holy Spirit equipping you for all of your life's relationships, and, and most especially with that with God, is now equipping you in your marriage to bring forth this character quality of humility, submission, as we see in the Lord Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. See, that's the character of Christ in terms of humility to a higher authority. No, 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 it's equal. This is an equality passage. Well, equal significance, equal value, different roles, not equal authority. Not biblically. I'm just, again, now the world has taught us different. We know we've moved on from this, and now it's, it's not this way. We've beaten um, Paul. But I haven't. I, I think Paul is right. I think men and women are different. They have different roles, and we need to embrace them because in that lies our power, and more importantly, our ability to glorify God. Well, you only have uh, three verses for the wives, and then you get, um, it's like seven verses for the husbands, and that's where we spend most of our time in this church haranguing the husbands about their responsibilities before the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. It's a command. It's not an option. It's a command. Well, I just don't feel like a lover. It doesn't say feel like you love your wives. It says lover. Well, I don't know what that means. Good 
point. Let's get into that. What does it look like to love? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Love gives the need that God says the person has. Love gives the need that God says the person has. You got to have every piece of that. Love gives the need that God says the other person has. You got me? That's love. That's what he's saying. Do this. Husbands, love your wives. How do I know that that's what he's talking about? Just as Christ also loved the church, what did Christ do for the church? He gave us the need that God said we had. That's what he did. That's what love does. Just as Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He had an objective in mind and he did want you. You could say it was for his sake that he saved you for himself because he wants you. Don't ever say, well, this is complete selflessness. Not complete selflessness. Jesus gets you. What a prize, right? But that's what it's saying. He did this because he wanted you for himself. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. All this is what he had to, to suffer at the cross for. And believers, walk in the light as he himself is in the light. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, then we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ goes on cleansing us from all sin. There's an ongoing work of the cleansing of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. In verse 28, so husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. See, there's the one flesh special. This is the part where it's not just Christian love. It's Christian marital love because we're one flesh. So it is you're loving yourself because your wife is your, your husband is, the, is one flesh with you. That's the idea. So it's not just generic Christian love. It's a special instance of generic Christian love and selflessness in marriage. You love yourself in that you're, she's your, your flesh. No one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we're members of his body. For this reason... Let's uh, give the command that I believe Moses issues a command in Genesis 2, 24. I used to think it wasn't a command. I'm leaning toward it's a command. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. Now, he will do this, but he should do this. This is God's design. Lots of trouble comes about in marriage. While I switch over to my marital counseling section of this message today, a lot of trouble comes in marriage because we won't do this. We still want to say, well, I came from them, so I'm still from their flesh. But that's not what the Bible describes. We're never described as one flesh with our parents or our children. In fact, there's a word for that, and it ain't a good word. We don't want to be anywhere near that. One flesh is marital. It's husband-wife, the way God says it. Yeah, but I came physically from my parents. Yeah, but that's not the marital relationship, and it's special, and God designed it. He gets to name it. Let's go with it. And this is something we need to honor and respect. Have you ever noticed, have you ever seen people that don't like the son-in-law or the daughter-in-law? Uh-oh. Well, this just got personal because everybody has a son-in-law or daughter-in-law, and we either do or don't like them, and you know who you are, right? Yes, it goes the other way, too. We don't like our mothers or fathers-in-law. They're not from us. We don't think like they do. Their house smells different. Whatever. They're different. They're different people. They don't think the same way I do about everything. So we don't really, eh, don't really gel so well. And we have this problem. We have this war that goes on. Have you ever seen that because of whether or not I like the son-in-law or daughter-in-law, I honor or dishonor the marriage bond and either do or don't respect the one flesh? Watch out for that, moms and dads. 
We need to watch out for that. Those two married people are one flesh. And Jesus said, whom God joins together, let no man separate. Let's honor that. Let's insist on that. Let's promote that. Let's bless that. They need it. Everything in the world tells the children that this is not of God. It's not their responsibility. It's not a blessing. It's sexual urge and emotional feelings. And that's all that you can pretty much hope for. And so the world guts, it rapes the, the life of the goodness and joy of real Christian life. And we mustn't let it. We, we need to emphasize verse 31. But in verse um, 32, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So he, gives, he says, I'm, I'm giving you some theology about Jesus and the relationship between the church as the bride. People say, no, Jesus isn't, the church isn't the bride of Christ. Right there, the church is the bride of Christ. It's a great mystery. And you're supposed to think of, of this body as somehow connected to Jesus as the bride. And I believe it is a rulership paradigm. The queen is next to the king in rulership, not, not on par with the king, but beside him. I think that's so will we ever be with the Lord. I think that's what he's talking about. That's why it's a mystery. But back to the, 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 the experience of the walk by the Spirit in marriage, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself. The wife must see to it that she respects her husband. He used a different word to say the same thing again. He doesn't tell wives to love their husbands. Now, I know, I know that you've sat in the most uncomfortable seats in Connecticut <laughs> or the rest of the USNA. I know that it's hard, and I know that um, we've gone so as long as we have. It's actually only been about 23 minutes, but I ask you, I beg you to spend just a few more and let me apply this with you. Let me apply this with you, and I want to do it visually. I said, I said through chapter 6, verse 9, that's your reading assignment. But can I describe for you what I see from, a Paul, from Paul's teaching, what I think a good, a good Christian marriage looks like? You are not going to be judged as Christians at the judgment seat of Christ for how well your marriage was. That's not how it works, because every one of us must stand at the judgment seat of Christ, and a marriage is two people. It's the relationship between two people. In other words, it takes two people to do this right to have a good one. You can have a successful husband and a failing wife and not a good marriage, or the other way around. See what I'm saying? So, but I want to describe for you a good marriage, and I think you will agree. I think you'll say this is exactly how it works based on what Paul says, especially as we pursue the riddle of why wives are not commanded to love their husbands but Jesus' sentence, John 13, 34, love, love one another as I've loved you, Paul applies that directly to husbands for their wives. Why do wives submit and husbands love? Why are these the watchwords? Why does a man need to do his job and a woman need to do her job and that equals a good marriage? I think I can illustrate it for you this way. You need a man and a woman for a good Christian marriage or really a good marriage. But we're talking about Christian marriage here. You need uh, God's institution of marriage as husband and wife. And I know some of you, I just lost you. I know that that's true. But um, I don't know who you are, and please don't let me know. It'll be a distraction, and it'll weigh down on my pastor's heart. All right, so you have initially, in what God tells man in Ephesians 5.25, an initiation, husbands love your wives. Can you see that up there? An initiation, an initial move. Husbands love your wives. Remember when I said there's the indicative and the imperative through Paul's letters? That God does something on our behalf. He saves us, and then he tells us what he wants so that our acts of obedience are really our loving response to what he's already done. That's grace. I've already been established in Christ by faith alone. And now the works that he calls me to and empowers me to do are works of gratitude 
in love in a relationship with God. That's what we mean by obedience when we talk about Christian obedience. It's loving response to what God has already done. The imperatives always follow the indicatives. What God has already done is always before what he tells me to do. But man puts on Christ. A husband is like Jesus and the wife is like the church and he initiates. Wives submit to your husbands means she's standing there waiting for him to do something. That's what it means. Submit to your husbands mean, okay, what next? It doesn't mean, here's, oh honey, here's what we're gonna do. That's not submit to your husbands. That's you starting it and it doesn't work. He says, women sit still. Ephesians 5.22, look it up. Just a second. Let him collect his thoughts. Men, you need to be having your quiet time with God so you have something to tell her. You really do need to shepherd your wives. But watch what happens. A good Christian marriage is Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, I say that that love is focused on her, on God's best for her. We look to God. What do you want for her? We look to her. She has Christ. Okay, she has eternal life. That's the most important thing. The next thing, let's live it. Let's equip her, provide a context. Let's spiritually enable her, empower her by our condition setting so that she can glorify God as a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the word of God. It's a priority for prayer. It's the things that we all fall short in, gentlemen, and we need to encourage each other to, uh, to repent and do better. Focused on God's best for her, disregarding of self. Got to say that. That's the one that, oh yeah. See, we, this model of love, the arrow goes away from you. It doesn't go back to you. Well, what am I getting out of this? I didn't get any. I didn't even get a kiss this morning. What did I, woe is me. What, what am I getting or not getting? We're so busy looking at ourselves, hanging on our imagined cross that we can't stop thinking of ourselves long enough to love. And so there's nothing to respond to. There's nothing to submit to. There's no Christian love here if you're worried about yourself. Jesus is not dying on the cross for himself. He did it for you. So if you're going to be like Jesus, then you stop looking at yourself, start looking at God and what he wants for her, gentlemen. Is that, is that harsh? There, there. There. Pat your own hand, guys, if that hurts you. Let's step up a little bit. Did, did he just call out the man in our church? I hope we did. I hope we are calling out the man in ourselves, gentlemen. I hope we are. I really pray that you're doing that, that you're saying we actually have responsibilities. We need to step up. You don't have to be Matt Dillon. We do have people from Dodge City. But you don't have to be Matt Dillon to get this right. You just have to be committed to God having his way in your life. And he tells you, step up. And it's initiation. Love is initiated. But what does a woman have to do in 522? She's got to receive it. You have to receive the love that's offered. And I don't mean, well, he gave me some attention. I mean, when he's actually going to God for your best ladies, don't say, well, I don't feel like that. You actually need to open your heart to God first and say, God, have your way. That's Christian marriage. Women, this is when, when he tries, and I know it's tragic how stumbling around this blind shepherd tries to lead the poor sheep. But when he's initiating and you're closed off, you're not Ephesians 5.22, you're not submitting. You're not receiving what he has to offer. And I, by the way, I have not mentioned physical. I'm not talking about our bodies here. That's part of the package. You can check it out in 1 Corinthians 7. But that is a very small piece of this conversation. When you say, what does God want for the other person? Yes, ladies, you need affection. You need attention. You need someone to listen to every single detail. Everyone. They all need to be important. 
and we need to repent. We gentlemen have to repent and when we can't quite hang on to all of it. <laughs> but we want to. Because we know you're a woman. You need this. We know you're a woman. And we don't if we're Christian men. We don't want you to be a man. We want you to be a woman. Don't you, gentlemen? <laughs> Women, good, yes. <laughs> but you have to receive it. You have to be willing to receive what he's initiating. This, this, is, this might be the biggest moment of repentance that a man say, I actually need to stop being passive and assert. I need to present the love of God as I've received it. I need to present, I turn around, pay it forward, and give it to her. When you do that, gentlemen, your Christian wife has now two examples, two Jesus, two Christs in her life that are showing the real Christ and then you imitating Christ in her. She's got two models of selfless love, the selfless love of God. Yeah, yours is imperfect, it's broken, it's not consistent, but it is there and she sees it and now she can receive this and guess what? She is by that able to replicate it. Love one another just as I've loved you, I think is a continued replication you teach someone to love as Jesus taught you to love, and then they take that and they teach someone else. It's a replication that happens. Discipleship is replication. Now, it doesn't say she loves in the passage, but she's, she's commanded by Jesus in John 13, 34 to love all through the New Testament. And, and we have the same thing. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Ladies, if you receive the love that's offered, you are given a context in your household, a context in your relationship for you to just be a real Christian, for you to love selflessly and consider the other, let's start with your husband, consider the other selflessly. What does God want this person to have? What is God's best for the other person? And so because you have disregarded yourself, but you've received so much, gentlemen, she's received so much from you and she's had something to replicate, she can respond and you will receive love. And the reason this is a good Christian marriage, the reason she will then be a Christian toward you and consider God's best and stop looking at herself and her imagined cross and look what I didn't get. She's like, I don't know what to do with all this love I've received. Let's replicate it, turn it around. Let's keep this going. Let's actually have a relationship. It's the gift of the Magi. We're headed toward Christmas time. Oh, Henry, great American uh, short story writer. If you haven't read him, you should. You're delinquent. Every one of you who's literate, read Oh, Henry. If you're not, get someone to read it to you. It's awesome. Check this out. Oh, Henry says that the, the couple, the young couple, loved each other so much that her beautiful hair, he had to buy her a comb. And his beautiful watch, I think that his father had gotten him, she had to get him a silver chain. And they scrimped and saved and they didn't have enough money for each other's Christmas presents. And unbeknownst to each other, she cut off her beautiful hair to buy the silver chain for him. And he sold his watch so that he could afford a beautiful ivory comb for her beautiful hair. And when they give each other their presents, they no longer are able to use them, but they become these beautiful tokens of selfless, self-giving love. That story, I, I'm sorry I get choked up about it. I'm also tired. But the gift of the Magi, the gift of the Magi is what that story is called. He's talking about Christmas. He's saying that's what the Magi were doing as they gave them themselves to Christ because Christ had given, God had given us Christ. I'm not suggesting that you ever cry in teaching a, a message on good Christian marriage. And I do not believe that my particular brand of emotionalism or fervor is prescriptive for you. <laughs> but it, you have to be who you are. What I would say, though, 
is that, gentlemen, you need to be initiating, and she needs to be, you, ladies, you need to be receiving and replicating. And if you do this, both receive love. Both receive what God would have for the other, and you don't bless yourself. You're not doing this for yourself. You get something like Jesus got at the church for himself by his self-giving, but what does he say to the church? If you love me, keep my commandments. We express our love in our response to him. We, the church, his bride, express our love by our response to him. Ladies, you express your love by your response to him. You will have a good marriage, gentlemen, if you will start this. Now, this is kind of like a motor, and you've got to start it. There was a movie and a book recently. Uh, I forget what wacky Christian film thing put it out, but it was real popular, and I don't want to, I'm not putting it down when I say it wasn't the greatest movie production, but, uh, but it was a great idea. The thing was called Fireproof, Kirk Cameron. Y'all remember that 10, 15 years ago, whatever. The idea was that the man had so uh, alienated his wife that there was no hope of getting her back. And no, no, no amount of doing this would get this done. And the point was, no, quit, quit quitting. Jesus gave you a command, love her. Do what he told you. Consider her for God's interest. What does God want for her? Keep doing it. And eventually, you'll prime that pump back up and it'll run. Eventually. You just have to be committed. You have to stay with it. You have to be dogged. And you have to have God working in the situation. The last thing I want to say about a good Christian marriage is that everybody's got a job. Do your job. The commands establish the priorities of work. Husbands, love your wives. That's your job. Don't entertain yourself. Do your job. Wives, submit to your husbands. Let him love you and then turn it around. If we'll do our jobs, we'll have good Christian marriages. And I, w- I, in- I invite your feedback. Because this is actually my feedback to this church. I've been here for 11 years. I've done a lot of marital counseling not with most of you here. Most of it is right before people leave. (laughs) You might call it pre-divorce counseling. (laughs) But this seems to be the answer to all our problems. I think we found that this is the the skeleton key that unlocks all the locks. This is the the solution. We've we've cracked the code. Do your job. But, But he won't initiate. It doesn't say submit to your husband if he does his job. It says do your job. She won't receive the love I offer. Okay? But what's Jesus Christ going to say about your performance at the judgment seat of Christ? What does Jesus think about you obeying him? See, Christian marriage is not about relational getting along or a good marriage. It's about an arena where you obey your Savior. A lot to think about. I challenge you to consider what God offers when he commands us to be filled by the Spirit, even as it affects your life, your marriage, your most important relationships. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we, we close our eyes and bow our heads to consider the claims of Jesus Christ on our eternal life, his offer of eternal salvation. Thank you for what Jesus did for us at the cross. We could never earn or deserve it. Father, there may be some here in the hearing of my voice that don't know Jesus as their Savior. They haven't considered the claims of Christ. And Father, we pray, as your, as your Spirit has told us through the Apostle John, that you would bring the conviction. We know that his, it's his job to bring conviction. We don't do that. That the words are true. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. The words of love, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. I am the way, the truth, and the life, says the Lord. No one comes to the Father but through me. Father, let these words ring true for those who are considering Christ, who are considering what life is about, why we're here. 
all the ornate design, all the beauty, all the vastness of space. Father, it calls for a purpose. Thank you that you've shown us that purpose through your Son. We seek to glorify and praise you through our obedience to him, having assumed all that you've said, walking by faith, obeying in love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.